Amen. Well, it is awesome to be back. Uh, yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. It is really, really good. Uh, I know we've got a lot of people out in uh, viewer land with us who are worshiping virtually with us, and probably they don't even know who I am. So let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Tom Hendricks. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Rio. My family and I have been around this church for 23 years. I've held this position for 19 years. And uh, we went away for like two or three weeks, and then I just scheduled myself not to preach for four weeks, and I sat back and I marveled as David Richardson, Scott Carson, Mason Brown, and Sam Kastensmith brought God's Word because it was amazing, guys. So good. So good. And I was just reminded how blessed I am personally to be surrounded by a staff of people. I mean, that's a short list compared to the actual list of people at this church who can preach and who can teach and who can lead and worship and who can sing and all of this. And man, I missed being here. And like, I miss doing this when I don't do it, but it was awesome to just sit back and take notes and hear how God spoke through them. That's good for us. Different personalities, different hearts formed and shaped, different passions. Wonderful to hear from those guys. But it was also wonderful to be back and to be able to do this again and to rejoin this study that we started actually seven weeks ago. And as Matt said earlier, what we're doing in this study, if you've missed it, is this. We are going to look at what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is located in the Old Testament. And if you don't know what the Old Testament is, that actually matters today. It's the part of the Bible written before the life, death, burial, and very significantly resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what we're doing is we're comparing and contrasting what Solomon wrote in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes with what the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, that part of the Bible written after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the book of Philippians. And the reason I kind of accentuate that is because I want you to see that between these two conversations, between these two statements, between these two letters, between these two books, God in the person of Jesus Christ entered into humanity, supernatural conception, body like mine and yours. And in his resurrection, he broke what I've been calling the observable pattern of human life. And what does that mean? It means what we can see with the two eyes of our heads according to the physical light of the sun. And what do we see when we look at just the pattern of human life? It is that we live, it is that we die, it is that we're buried, and then what do we see after that? Nothing. So it's life, it's death, it's burial, and then that's it. Like you never go to the graveyard expecting to see your loved one, you know, like sitting on the park bench. It's life, it's death, it's burial, and then that's it. And if that's it for you, like when you look at that, you go, yep, that's it. That's what I believe, that that's it. It's life, it's death, it's burial, and then that's it. Solomon is talking to you. He's going, hey, let's take that up for a minute. Let's chat through that together. Let's suppose, in fact, that that is the case. No God, no heaven, no hell, no rewards, no punishments, nothing, life, death, burial, and then that's it. He's like, guys, you know where that leaves you, don't you? You know where that road ends. It ends in a world in which nothing and no one matters. It's inescapable. It's like there's no getting around it. You're like, ah, but what about it? He's like, no, shoots that down. You're like, okay, but yeah. And he's like, no, shoots that down. Nothing and no one matters if that's the case. In fact, today he will go as far as to say, look, 
if there's nothing but life and death and burial and, I don't know, that's it, it would actually be better if none of us were born. And he has given us reason after reason after reason after reason after reason after reason after reason reason that that is in fact the case. But today what he gives us is the reason of oppression. He comes to us with the plight of the oppressed. He comes to us with the condition of the oppressed. He comes to us, and this is a key word and idea, with the tears of the oppressed. And he says, hey, listen, for this reason, if it's just life, death, and burial, and then that's it, better not to have been born. Listen to what he says. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, he says, Again, I saw what? All of the oppressions that are done under the sun, and as we'll see in a second, the kind of oppression that he's talking about is the oppression of the powerless by the powerful. And what's kind of ironic about this is, as Matt said earlier in the service, Solomon was the king. He was the sovereign. There was no judge and jury. He was the judge and jury. He did whatever he wanted. Cut off this guy's head, promote this guy, demote this person, kick them out, bring them in. If there was ever a person perfectly positioned in this earth and in this world to stamp out the oppression of the powerless by the powerful, it was him. And he's coming to us and going, yeah, but you know what? Even as the king, I can't stamp all of that out. And as the king, when you look at his life, you know what it reveals? That it wasn't just out there for him. It wasn't just that person and those people over there and that little group. Oh, they're oppressors. And look at that guy. Look at what he's doing. And look at this woman over here. Do you see how she's doing? What it revealed is that oppression lived in him. This guy wrote three of the books of the Bible. Well, when he dies, what happens? His son Rehoboam is exalted to the king. So he's anointed. He's going to take over for his father. And the, the elders of the 12 tribes of Israel come to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And what do they say? Because what they decry is the oppression of Rehoboam's father Solomon, who's speaking to us today. They come and they say, listen, your father's yoke on us, too heavy. That's oppression. It was crushing the weight of this. He demanded too much from us. Please, if you would just lighten our load a little bit, if you would be less oppressive than your dad, we will be grateful and we will gladly follow you. And what does Rehoboam do? It's foolishness. He should have listened. Listen to the words that he says. He says, my father disciplined you with whips. That's oppression. And I'm going to be worse. I will discipline you with scorpions. My goodness, Solomon had oppression in his kingdom. He had oppression in his heart. And look at his son. His son is even worse. And I think that's instructive because I think what it tells us is that oppression doesn't just live out there. That's true for me and it's true for you. It's not just, oh, it's that people and it's those people and it's those guys and it's that club and it's that association and it's that party and it's these guys and that person over there and those guys. And man, we are so good at seeing it in other people. It's amazing. It's like it's our full-time job. I think we've got to take a step back for a minute and go, okay, okay, all right. They'll still be there. (laughs) They'll be there. But what about me? Because oppression needs to be opposed wherever it's found, and if it's also found in here, well, then it needs to be dealt with there too. Solomon says, 
Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, to which he adds, and behold, it's a word that means, look, he wants you to see something, and he wants you to see it because he wants you to be moved by it. He was moved by it, even though he was also guilty of it. And it's that word, tears, again. He says, behold, look, the tears of the oppressed. And now remember this, because he says it twice. He says they had no one to comfort them. For on the side of their oppressors, there was power. And here it is again. There was no one to comfort them. And as a result, Solomon says, you know, as I sat around thinking about it with my incredibly brilliant mind, I thought that the dead who are already dead are actually more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both those who are alive and those who are already dead, he says, is he who has not yet been born is the idea. And who as a result of not ever having existed has not had to see the evil deeds of oppression that are done under the sun, for which there is no comfort and there is no redress if there is nothing but life and death and burial and, well, then that's it. But if Christ is risen, guys, if the observable pattern of human life has been broken by him, and not just for him, but for me, for you, for all who believe in him, if in fact that then is the case, well, that transfers us into a different kind of world. It, it takes us from a world in which literally nothing and no one matters and you can't defeat that argument to a world in which literally everything and everyone matters and you can't defeat that argument. It's remarkable. And what it means is that we need to deal with oppression out there, okay? And in here. We need to deal with it in ourselves and in our city. And who better to show us how to do that than Jesus? Think of the unique position, racially speaking, of Jesus. Jesus is a first century Jew. He is born into a race of people who for centuries upon centuries, hundreds of years, including all the years of his life here on earth, oppressed a different race of people, the Samaritan people. They were oppressed for racial reasons. They were oppressed for religious reasons. They were so defiled in the eyes of the Jews that even though they lay in the middle of the land between the north of the land and the south of the land, that when the Jews went from north to south, they didn't go through. That would have been the easiest route. They went around because you don't want to run into those people. They're filthy. They're defiled. They are, in their words, unclean. They're dangerous. These groups of people terrorized each other. Jesus is born into that race of people. And what is his disposition toward the Samaritans? What does he do? What he does is he cashes in a bunch of chips with his people, with his followers, with his most intimate followers, all of them Jewish like him. And he says to his guys one time, hey, you know, I know you've spent your whole life. You know what? I know we've all spent our whole lives. You know what? I know our people for hundreds of years when traveling from the north to the south have gone around Samaria, but we're going to do it differently this time, guys. We're going to go through Samaria because in Samaria there is a woman. Yes, you heard me, a woman, a Samaritan woman who has a very checkered past, who fails all of your tests racially, religiously, in terms of her gender. Sorry, but that was the culture. And in terms of all of the moral boxes, every possible way you could be immoral, that's her. And I'm going to go reveal myself to her. I'm going to go bring myself to her. And through her, I'm going to transform her entire village. 
That's Jesus. Why does he do that? I think the why matters. He doesn't do it because he feels guilty. He doesn't do it because he's ashamed. He doesn't do it because the social pressure around him says, you need to do this, and this is what we're expecting of you, and therefore you better get going, and everybody's watching. You know what the social pressure was for him? It was to not do it. He took arrows for this, without a doubt. It was love. It was an internal motivation that emanated for God's heart of love for oppressed people. Jesus says, to see me is to see the Father. Well, watch Jesus carefully and you see the Father's heart. And it is ever and always drawn to the oppressed. But what's fascinating is that it doesn't end there. Because you see, as a first century Jew, Jesus was also born into a race of people who were themselves oppressed by the Romans. The Romans had come. The Romans had conquered. The Romans had raped, pillaged, and plundered. The Romans had taken their land and then divided it up into taxing districts, brought in their soldiers and their centurions, hired tax collectors from amongst the Jewish people themselves, and then continued to tax them, no doubt at outrageous rates. The Jews would be walking around in their town, and their place, and here would come a soldier, and he'd say, listen, I don't know where you're going. I don't know where, if it's important. I don't know what time you're supposed to be there. I don't know what all that stuff is you're carrying, but drop it because I'm going to give you my load of stuff, and now you're going to carry it for me, and we're going 10 miles that way. And it's not like you could call and go, hey, man, I got hijacked by a centurion. I'm, we're going to have to reschedule, you know? Can you imagine how they hated these people? The indignity of that. That will make you a bitter person. Will make you a bitter people. They come to Jesus and they say, I don't know, should we pay taxes or not? He says, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. What? A centurion, a a man in charge of a hundred of these soldiers that I've just described who's concerned for his servant, his servant is dying. He's taken him to all of the different doctors. He's spent all that money can spend and buy and, you know, in terms of care, nothing has worked. He's heard about Jesus. He, he says to Jesus, listen, my servant, he's at the house. He's going to die. I'm afraid. Speak the word of healing and he will be healed. You don't even need to come to my house. I'm a man under authority, says, I say to this person, go, and they go. I say to this person, sit, and they sit. I say to this person, stand, and they stand. He's like, I have power, I understand. And you have that kind of power over all kinds of things, including life and death and sickness and health. He said, just speak the word, and my servant will live. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't demean the man. He doesn't embarrass the man. He doesn't belittle the man. He does not lecture the man. Think about that, which is kind of interesting. Because if ever there was a know-it-all, it is in fact Christ. He knows everything, literally. So he could kind of knock you down a few notches. He speaks the word of healing. And then he turns to the Jews all around him including his most intimate followers. And he says, guys, I'm just going to tell you, that guy's faith is greater than the faith of any of you and of any Jewish person in the whole of Israel that I've encountered to date. Uh, How not to win friends and influence people? 
I mean, wow. Look at Jesus' inner circle. He had two of the most opposite people the world has probably ever produced. Like I was trying to think of two people in our day and age today that would sort of, you know, match just how far apart these guys were. I got nothing. He had on the one hand a tax collector, one of those people that the Romans came to and said, look, we want a Jewish person who knows where all the money is to buy the taxing district and then we'll give you our soldiers and you can go knock on the doors of your friends and of your family and of your former business acquaintances, etc., 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 and you can collect as much money from them as you want, just pay us this much. And who made themselves hugely wealthy using the force of the hated Romans oppressively upon their people. One of the 12 is a tax collector. Well, I should say a former tax collector named Matthew. Another one of the 12 is named Simon the Zealot, which means that before he came to faith in Christ, before he joined the band of men, he was part of this group of people that were radically and militarily opposed to Roman occupation These are the guys that many ways spearheaded the revolt against Rome 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus that resulted in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. They thought that it was treason against God, wait for it, to pay taxes. I've got a tax collector and a zealot. And they're in my inner, inner core. It's called transformation. But how were they transformed? Because it wasn't by guilt or shame. It wasn't by fear or self-interest. It wasn't by licking their finger and sticking it up and saying, I don't know, what, what, what would work best for me? Like, I don't know, how, how, how would they, what would look best for me? Like, it was by a Jesus who poured himself out for them who dealt, yes, with their issues, did. And he made them from unjust to just men, from oppressors to those who would stand against oppression. He transformed their lives, God, with with his love, with his redeeming, forgiving love. Look at the apostle Paul. He's the one that wrote this book of Philippians. Okay, well, where was he when Jesus found him? Because he was a very different man, and actually he had a different name, which is semi-confusing. He wasn't called Paul. He was called Saul, at least it rhymes. But he was an oppressor of Christians. He was out rounding up Christians and putting Christians in jail and beating and torturing Christians and killing and murdering them. And Jesus transformed him from being that guy into arguably the most effective advocate for Christ in the history of the Christian church. What changed? Well, Jesus certainly called him out on his behavior. He meets with him on the road to Damascus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you, by persecuting all of these people, persecuting me? So it's not like he turned a blind eye to that. The oppression was dealt with. It's just that he didn't leave him there. He didn't go, look at what a filthy person you are. Look at what a terrible person you are. Look at, don't you feel guilty about this? Aren't you ashamed of all of this? Okay, now go straighten up your act. Go get it together, man. Doesn't work just makes you resentful, divides you further. 
Now Jesus pointed out the sin, yes. And then he made provision for it at the expense of his own life. And he transforms Paul from someone who was oppressing Christians to someone who was himself being oppressed because he was a Christian. In fact, as Matt said, when he writes this book of Philippians that we're comparing and contrasting the statements of with what Solomon is saying over here, he's chained between two to four soldiers in a jail cell in first century Rome, knowing that he was going to die. Paul was beheaded, and he saw it coming. And yet, what does he find in that cell? Well, he finds, first of all, the very thing that Solomon says cannot possibly exist. He says it's twice. He's like, look, if it's just life and death and burial and then that's it, there's no one to comfort the oppressed. Paul not only finds comfort, he finds joy. Listen to this man in chains. He says to these people that he loves, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with, here it is, joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel, which alone transforms people, lives, communities. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, he goes on, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? Because it's really important at the day of Jesus Christ. And what day is that exactly? It is the day upon which the observable pattern of human life, that is to say life, death, and burial, and then that's it, will and for forever be broken, and not just for Jesus, but for all of us. It is the day of resurrection. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of liberation. It is a day in which all of the oppression in here and out here will finally and fully and for forever cease. And do you know what the first thing is that God will do for you in that new earth that Jesus will usher in? Because it speaks to something that Solomon said. He says, behold, the tears of the oppressed. Look, look, look at them. Look at their plight. Look at their condition. Look at their tears. Oh, man, if this is it, if this is all there is, if you die and then that's it, there is no one to comfort them. John describes that new world that Jesus will usher in on that day. And he says that agenda item number one on God's list, Revelation 21, verse 4, is that God will wipe away every tear, just personalize this, from your eyes, which when you read it in its context is kind of an odd statement. And the reason I say that is because he goes on to talk about the fact that there will be no crying in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so you're like, well, what tears exactly is he wiping away? Well, what tears do you think? It's the ones you've cried here. It's the ones you cry here. He will comfort you for all of your tears, including the ones cried over the times in which you were oppressed. And the Apostle Paul in chains can look to that day and find comfort in chains and find joy in a jail cell, knowing that, you know, he's going to be beheaded. He's good. (laughs) It's remarkable. And I think the question is, All right, well, then how are we supposed to live as Christians between this day, today, and that final day? 
Like, how are we supposed to live? And Paul tells us that too. Philippians 2, verse 14, and here's what I want you to do, okay? I don't want you to look out there and all the oppressive people and blah, 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 blah. Forget about them for a minute. You and the Lord. Compare you in this present cultural moment to this statement and do it knowing that Paul didn't write this statement to condemn you. It's not the gospel, but to free you, to lead you to the one who makes atonement for it all. Paul says, all right, so here we go. Do all things. How? Without grumbling or disputing. Okay, well, uh, why? So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted, and if I might add, and it fits the context, by the way, really, really dark generation, but among whom you, when you live like that, do what? Shine how? The word is actually as stars, like the ones in the sky. Among whom you shine as stars in the world. So I think that begs the question of, all right, well then what are stars like? Well, I think stars are constant. They're just unchanging. The stars are just, they're always there. I mean, you can ignore them, you can go in the house. Sometimes, you know, your vision is obscured by the clouds. I get that. They're burning away, man. They are being stars all the time. They're consistent. In fact, they're so consistent that from the beginning of time, mankind has navigated by the stars, not by the light, but by their constancy and their positions. It's remarkable. They don't get sucked into this and pulled down by that. Stars are transcendent. They stand above everything that happens here on planet Earth. It's like they rise above the whole conversation and look down. Stars are bright. They pierce the darkness from distances that our minds cannot even begin to fathom. But I think what captures me the most about stars is that they're beautiful. There is a beauty to the stars. I think Paul's coming and he's saying, listen, there should be a beauty to your life. And there is a beauty to your life when your life conforms to the life of Jesus. So if you want to apply that to this topic of oppression that Solomon's raised for us, I think like some action points would be, hey, you know what? Go and serve and fight for the oppressed. And not because you've been guilted into it or shamed into it or it would make sense for you or you licked your finger and went, yeah, I think this would look good. And No, 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 not for self-motivated reasons, not for external pressure kind of motivated reasons. Go serve and fight for the oppressed because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has served you and fought for you at the expense of his own life and he has delivered you from the oppression of your sin, including the ways that you and that I have oppressed other people. I think, secondly, we need to forgive those who oppress us. Not because we've been demeaned into it. Not out of fear. Not out of care for our own reputations. We need to forgive those who oppress us because Jesus, at the expense of his life, has forgiven us. I think, thirdly and finally, we need to preach the gospel both to the oppressed and to the oppressor, and that includes ourselves. Not the gospel of this world. That is a gospel of guilt. That is a gospel of fear. That is a gospel of shame. That is a demeaning gospel. That is a put-you-in-your-place gospel. That is a know-it-all gospel in which people who seemingly know it all but don't 
Put us in our place. And you know what? At times I'm one of those people. I don't think I'm alone. I think we need to get in touch with the humility of our Savior and speak from a humble place. We need to preach the gospel, the real gospel of Jesus, both to the oppressed and to the oppressors and to ourselves. For we are oppressors. It's not just Solomon. Look, if the guy that wrote three books of the Bible can engage in this, I'm for sure subject to it. And the reason is that that gospel has the power to take even tax collectors and zealots and make them one. So go deal with the oppressed. Do it the way that Jesus did. And what you'll find is that you start to shine by his spirit, by his power, for his glory. Suddenly your life, little by little, little by little, little by little, becomes more and more beautiful. I read a great book with kind of a terrible title years ago by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is a Russian novelist, or was. Uh, He was also a Christian, brilliant, amazing man. He wrote a lot of incredible books, but there's a book that he wrote that's entitled The Idiot. And I thought to myself, like, what did the publisher think about that? Like, I think Dostoevsky must have come to him and said, look, you can't publish my book unless you call it The Idiot, because that doesn't attract me, you know? Like, I mean, you're not walking down the book aisle, you know, and going... I think I'll read about an idiot. You know, that sounds like a good idea. But it's the perfect title for the book. The central character in the book is called Prince Lev Nikolaevich Mishkin, and you have to practice that if you're going to say it out loud. Full of all these Russian names. But Prince Mishkin is the Christ figure in the book. And he's the idiot. It's a fascinating experiment. He started out with this book not even knowing where it was going to end. He said, I just want to write about a man who has a life like beautiful like the Savior. And I want to play through all of the characters in my mind and imagination and anticipate how they would encounter him and what they would think of him and how they would be affected and what he would do in all of these different circumstances. And so the novel kind of you know meanders a little bit, but it's also Dostoevsky's personal favorite novel. It's the work he's proudest of. At times, they all think, man, this guy's an idiot. He takes all his money, just, well, he gives it away. Gives it to this person who's obviously using him. (laughs) Gives it to this person who's clearly taking advantage of him. Just gives it away. He falls in love with this woman who's desperately broken who's prideful and scornful and mocking and promiscuous, who gives herself to whoever has money. And he loves her no matter what she does to him, and what she does to him is not kind. He sacrifices for her. He pursues her. She's faithful only to herself. He is undyingly faithful to her. It's remarkable because she's a picture of all of us. Kind of the tagline of the book, and it runs through, is this one statement that Dostoevsky says, and it's brilliant. Again and again, he says that beauty will save the world. 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 
He doesn't say that money will save the world or science will save the world or technology will save the world or politics will save the world or democracy will save the world. Or He says, no, there's something powerful enough to do it. It isn't any of those things. It's beauty. It's the beauty of the glory of God in the face and the person and the character and the nature of Jesus Christ as displayed to the world by the work of the Spirit of God in conjunction with his word and community with his people through people like you. Through people like you. Guys, let us stop living in light of the gospel of this world, tearing each other down, tearing others down. And in the process, you know who we damage the most? Us and Jesus. Let us start living according to the gospel of Christ. Let us deal with oppression and every other thing the way that he did. And when we do, we will exhibit his light. We'll shine like stars. And here's the thing about stars. All right, they're beautiful. Beauty will change the world. The beauty of Jesus seen by the world through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that beauty exists because when we look around, Lord, we do not see it. God, but we see it in the person. We see it in the work of Jesus, the one who has lived, the one who has suffered, the one who has died, the one who has been buried, and the one who has raised, the one who reigns and who rules the one who is willing to return and make all things new and all things right. And the one who by his spirit enables broken and frustrated and discouraged people to transcend the goings-on of this earth, to be healed and brought together with the tax collector or the zealot or whatever. Lord, and to shine constantly, consistently, transcendently, powerfully, and beautifully. Lord, let your beauty be seen in us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.